0: Our thanks to the praise team, as always, for leading us in worship this morning. Beautiful selection of music, because every Sunday, Mike and the teams do a great job of selecting music that elevates our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we thank thank them, rather, for their leadership in worship this morning. All right, still looking for my notes. There they are. Okay. So, for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you this morning and along with our congregation, turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. A number of guests this morning and perhaps you're joining with us for the first time we preach and teach expositionally at Flat Creek, and that means we take a passage of Scripture or a book, and we preach through it from beginning to end. We've done that. The Lord has allowed us to be here for uh, over 25 years now. We've had the uh, the grace to minister to these great people for that length of time, and we ha- we kicked it off 25 years ago with the sermon on the Mount, and then we went into 1 Corinthians and the pastoral epistles, and so a number of different books that we have uh, had the opportunity to study. Um, Our Sunday school classes do a very similar thing, Uh, so join with us. Now, I'm going to be reading from the New King James. Most of you students will probably have the easy southern version. Uh, When I went to school, I could read the these and the thous. Uh, Apparently that's been lost over the years, but it just means you and me. But uh, I will read from the New King James, whatever version you have, very similar. Most of them are very similar. So I'm going to read the first eight verses this morning. We spent some time in uh, the book of Romans. In fact, I think next month we will be in the book about four years. Now remember that we have taken some breaks, so that's not four consecutive years, but Often on about four years in the book of Romans. Paul wrote this to the church at Rome. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinances of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil do you want to be unafraid of the authority do what is good and you will have praise from the same for he is god's minister to you for good but if you do evil be afraid for he do, uh, he does not bear the sword in vain for he is god's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due tax to whom taxes are due customs to whom customs fear to whom fear honor to whom honor O No one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. May God bless the reading of his holy word, and let's once again approach His throne of grace in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the preparation to receive the word. And now we pray that where we are ignorant, we ask that you would teach us, we pray that where we are proud, that you would humble us. And we pray that where we are unlike Christ, that you would make us like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A number of messages, as I've said in the, in the 13th chapter of the uh, book of Romans, and we've entitled, at least through the first seven or eight verses, the gospel and government. But this morning I want us to reflect back on what we've read and look at what the Bible teaches about the gospel and when believers resist government. We are not milk-toast individuals. As I speak this morning, in fact, most of you here today are probably in all probability Citizens of the United States of America. That's a good thing. You're privileged. I am privileged to be a citizen of this great nation. And we have responsibilities to the government, whether it is um, dominated by Republican or Democrat or Independent. But there are times when believers, are to resist governments. And we're going to look at a few of those this morning. Now, Romans 13, as we've read through this, it implies moral laws. And the function of government, and we've covered this a number of times, the function of all governments, not just democracies, of all governments, is to protect the good and to punish the evildoers. We've read that here in this passage. The moral law is universal because he talks about conscience, and we're going to look at conscience somewhat this morning. As a matter of fact, turn with me back to Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2 this morning. So what do you do about all the innocent people around the globe? Well, we don't do anything with them because there are no innocent people, according to the Bible. And Paul addresses this in chapter 2, the book of Romans, verse 12. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified... For when Gentiles, or the pagans, the heathens, who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, and their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else ...excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. There's the moral implication of the law to the consciousness of men and women. And God's good moral law can be known in part by all people. Now, it never is known in full, but it can be known in part by all people... ...because moral law is universal... It paves the way for governments, for differing opinions within governments to agree in a pluralistic society so that nations can function. That's the purpose for it. You've heard me say before, I will say this again. We have government on earth because there's government in heaven. The government in heaven is completely different. Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. He said, let's pray that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Because in the government of heaven, it's always done. That's the reason there's government on earth. Christians, you and I that know Christ as Savior, we should be glad that God's common grace extends to a periphery of goodness. Now, men and women are not good intrinsically. We can do good things, but we don't have deep within our hearts that goodness. Jesus himself taught this. Out of the heart of man comes all of these deceitful things. So there is a, a goodness that is moral, but that morality will not convert or save Anyone. Now, it can provide for the common good in governments, and we're to thank God because of his common grace in this regard. So, a couple of things I want to mention to you before we get to, there are about three different times that we need to uh, resist the government. First slide, if you would. But A couple of things that would lead into that this morning. So when we talk about the, the gospel and when to resist authority, we need to, to think about this. Put your thinking caps on. We're in church. It's okay to be emotional, but we're also to think. Let this mind be in you, Paul said. How does the scripture mold our thinking about government involvement? And the scripture should mold believers' thinking. We are tested on the periphery, if you please, on the externals by all sorts of divisive positions, one party or the other. But for believers, those are to be set aside. And we are to allow the Word of God to guide us into. Molding our thinking about how we are to be involved in government. Two things. First one. The Bible is to guide our behaviors. It's to provide for us the behaviors that we seek to put into law. Paul has spent 11 chapters talking about the indicatives, the doctrines that precede. Our belief always precedes behavior. And so he has taken those first 11 chapters, and now in chapters 12, in fact, from now, from chapter 12 through chapter 16, he's going to pave for us a road that teaches us, this is what you believe, this is how you behave. And so the first thing that we're to remember about Scripture molding our thinking is that the Bible guides us in behaviors that we should desire to put into law. What do you mean, preacher? Well, here's the thing. Biblical behaviors, not secular behaviors, not worldly, not cultural behaviors, biblical behaviors are essential to the common good of society. I believe that with all my heart. And if you're here this morning and you're born again, you should believe that with all your heart. There should be no question that if all peoples were born again and lived by the principles that were established in the Word of God, this would be a better world. All God's people said, remember that. Now they don't. And sometimes believers don't. But they are essential to the common good of society. They should be aggressively pursued For enactments as law, civil law, with both biblical and natural arguments. How do we behave? We learn from the Word of God, and if we are convinced that the Word of God is the Word of God, then it impacts and it's important and it's relevant to everyone, not just believers. In other words, for an example, there are certain behaviors, and this is just one, abortion. How many people have passed away from COVID, approximately? I know somebody knows. How many? 100, what? 170,000 or so, right? How many, how many unborn children have been aborted this year in America Up to August the 23rd. Beg pardon? Close to that. It's around 450 to 500,000. Now, why do we hear so much about COVID? But we don't hear about a far more destructive behavior. That's a question for you to ask. Comes back to the thinking cap. Abortion destroys children. Unborn, innocent children. As believers, we should aggressively and peaceably seek to end murder of innocent human life beginning at conception, and all the way to the grave. We know that of the 170,000 or so that have lost their lives to COVID, that almost almost half of them have passed away in nursing homes, which is a blight on our society. But we fail to remember abortion destroys children. If we believe the Bible teaches that human life is granted by God in his image, is to be protected, then we are responsible for this. And if we don't do it, I'm here to tell you, most of our country will not. Well, preacher, that's going to cause a lot of heartburn. So be it. We're going to see some examples of individuals that, one of whom later on in the message, who lost his life because his conscience determined his direction during World War II. Next slide, brother. So the first thing is we use the Bible to guide us in what behaviors we seek to put into law. And well, well, preacher, hey, you, we, you can't legislate morality. There's a biblical word for that, Greek word for that. Baloney. You can. If I come down from the pulpit this morning, and for no unprovoked reason, I hit one of you, you, you could and should. Dial 911 call the deputies, and have me carted off and arrested for assault, battery, or battery, whatever. Yes, you can. Laws protecting unborn babies are in the same category as laws that protect adult life. that protect property and protect contracts. Now, few complain about the prohibition of murder that are in statutes in each of our 50 states and even around the world. Few complain about stealing. Few complain about perjury. But aren't these legislations of morality? Therefore, no one should complain when believers take that stand, especially the church. The sanctity of life is a moral and a natural reality that is so profoundly woven into the fabric of humanity and taught in Scripture. That its undoing has significantly impacted the moral fabric of the family, especially families of color. God help us. How does Scripture mold uh, our thinking? Secondly, Christians do not use physical force to advance Christ's kingdom. We're in Romans, turn back a couple of pages, Romans 10, and then we'll go to John. You should know this one. <clears throat> 10.17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And go back to John 18. In fact, you may want to hold your finger in John 18. We'll, there are a couple of other passages that uh, or verses that we'll look at in John 18 this morning as well. Jesus is on trial. And this is is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Not a proof text. It's just a, I love the way the Lord presents us. Verse 35, Pilate answered, Am I Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. You should underline that. We are to be the best citizens we can be within the framework of the government that we have, but our kingdom is not of this world. We're to pray that God's kingdom, God the Father's kingdom come to earth, but our kingdom is not in this world. No one less than Jesus himself stated this. If my kingdom were of this world, My servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Scripture tells us in a number of places that Jesus could have called for legions of angels to deliver him from his passion. But he didn't because his kingdom is not of this world. And we should be glad that he didn't, because his death secured for us eternal life. Faith alone cannot be coerced, nor can it be forced by physical means. Now, preaching is one of the methods that God uses to bring people to Christ. And it's the uh, the compelling and the drawing, the conviction of the Spirit of God that brings people to Christ. But I can no more save you than someone else. Only Jesus saves. Faith is awakened by the Word. That's what Paul said in Romans 10. It draws us to who God is. And it draws us to who we are. So, preaching and teaching the Word of God are the most precious freedoms that Christians have. You should believe that. Without the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, no one here this morning, nor listening and watching via the Internet, would be saved. Or you may be wealthy, you may have status, you may have education, but you would not be delivered. I would not be delivered from my sins without the preaching and teaching of God's Word. It is the most precious freedom believers have. We are to aggressively contend for the faith once delivered by assuring the freedom of speech. Spent some time in the in the little epistle of Jude a few weeks ago. We're to contend for the faith that was once delivered. How do we do that? We aggressively pursue the First Amendment freedoms, that of speech, which I'm permitted to preach and teach and to think and to speak regardless of how horrible it may be, and the free exercise of religion. And if we don't do that, we're going to lose those freedoms. There's a movement in the Western culture, it's been a movement for the past 50 years, to eliminate preaching. Ah, preacher, that'll never happen here. Hey, we never thought abortion would happen here. Hmm. So those are the two things. How does Scripture mold our thinking? Christians should be tolerant of other faiths. That doesn't mean we agree with them. But we're to be tolerant of other faiths, not because all faiths are equally valuable or truthful. They are not. Because he who is the absolute truth, our Lord, forbids forbids the spread of the truth by the sword. In John 18, look back at verse eleven. Verse ten. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Aggressively and peaceably. And we do that because that's how the Lord taught us to live. To be tolerant of others means that they are to be tolerant of us. And because we live in a sinful society, we want that. We do not need for someone to force our tolerance, but Jesus himself understood it. Paul understood it. Read Acts chapter 17, though a number of those questions would be answered. The Bible holds the conviction That forced conversion does not change hearts. That's a major difference between Islam and the Christian faith. The freedom to preach, the freedom to teach, the freedom to publish, to write, to assemble for worship. These convictions flow from Scripture. They are paramount to our behavior. And believers should protect them for the good of society. And here's why. Next slide, if you would, brother. This is a long quote, but I want to read it for you. Dr. Robert Culver, who's professor of theology at uh, Wheaton College outside of Chicago and Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is the school that Don Carson is uh, president of, wrote this in a book entitled Toward a Biblical View of Civil Government. Where theistic government grows weak, that is where religion related to God grows weak. Justice will weaken. Crimes, then, are defined as antisocial activity, which, in turn, then, is merely what the majority says it is. Then, punishment seemed to be the result of the majorities ganging up on the minority. We've seen that throughout our history. We see it today. This, in turn seems inconsistent with democratic feelings. The result is a decline in uniform application of penalties for crime. Resultant miscarriages of justice, trampling on the rights of law-abiding people, together with an increase in what ought to be called crime. David wrote in the Psalms, Psalm 11, he said this. For behold, the wicked bends their bows. They set their arrow on the string to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When principles of government are detached from God, When they're not seen as a reflection of the triune mind of God, then justice weakens. God is many, many things, but one of the primary attributes he has is holiness, and because of his holiness, he is a just God. And so, what's not defined anymore as crimes becomes antisocial behavior. You heard that term recently? I think you have. It's not a question of guilt. It becomes a question of your psychological soundness. Now, this is not new. As I said, this has been going on for years, many, many years, primarily since World War II, but even before that. When the foundation of what is right and wrong is removed and all that is left is majority opinion, then the majority will vote for degrading justice. Because after all, I don't want to be one of the ones that has to stand before the state's justice. Justice is a key word in Scripture. It's found better than 130 times in the Bible. It means rightness. It means rectitude. It means quality of being correct in judgment. That's what we want. That's what we desire. A a correct judgment. And the fact is, even if the government, even if our government, abandons biblical foundations, the imperatives do not change. We are to be subject to, we've read that, and we are to support and sustain with taxes. However, historically and biblically, civil authority does not always reward the good or punish the bad. Bad behavior is often rewarded or glossed over, and good behavior is punished. In the Bible, God permits his people sometimes to disobey civil authority. Next slide, brother. There are three areas, three principles for disobeying or submitting or resisting, rather, authority. In the first is if we are asked to violate a command of God. And go with me to Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> Actually, verse 13. But when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do with these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name, obviously the name of Jesus. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. You make a right decision. Now, obviously they didn't. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. Now turn over to chapter 5. So, Peter and John, ever the good disciples, ever the unfaithful disciples prior to the resurrection of Jesus, now are extremely virulent, courageous preachers. And they are preaching to the same group of the Sanhedrin and Pharisees and Sadducees that murdered the Lord. And look, if you would, at verse 28. Verse 27, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly strictly command you not to teach in his name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the other apostles answered, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. The book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 22, says that cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And Jesus was hung on a tree. He was hung on a tree because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 2 was prohibited from Adam and Eve eating of it. They ate of it anyway in chapter 3. And so in Deuteronomy, God the Father said... When a person commits a capital crime, hang him on a tree. That's to remind them of the sin of Adam and Eve. So that's what they did to Jesus. They hung him on a tree, on a cross. And Peter reminds them of that. You murdered him. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. So if we are asked to violate a command of God, now so far our government has not done this. And We should hope and pray and work that it never happens. But we should not be stooges either. We're to proclaim that we want to protect freedom of speech and freedom of faith because it provides for us the platform for proclaiming the gospel, which alone saves men and women, boys and girls. And often a high price is extracted in loving God in a way that our obedience leads to persecution. It did for Jesus. It did for these men. We are no different. Back in the early 60s, a young lady that was 19 years of old uh, of age by the name of Ada Skripnikova in the Soviet Union came to faith in Jesus Christ. And she knew she was supposed to share her newborn faith with others so she purchased some postcards with a, a beautiful illustration of a sunrise and on each of those postcards she wrote a new year's poem and here's the poem our years fly past one another unnoticed grief and sadness disappear they are carried away by life This world, the earth, is so transient, everything in it comes to an end. Life is important. Don't be happy-go-lucky. What answer will you give your Creator? What awaits you, my friend, beyond the grave? Answer this while light remains. Perhaps tomorrow before God, you will appear to give an answer for everything. Think deeply about Now, she's 19. Think deeply about this. For you are not on this earth forever. Perhaps tomorrow you will break forever your links with this world. Seek God where he is to be, when he is to be found. And so, she went to the main street in Leningrad the Nevsky Prospect, very equivalent to Fifth Avenue in New York City. And she began to hand out the postcards. She also stood in front of the Museum of Atheism and handed the cards out. And she was arrested. She was tried in April of 1962. She was sent to prison. She was exiled from Leningrad. She lost her job. She was released several times. She was arrested again for doing the very same thing, 1965. And in 1968, she spent a total of 10 years in the gulag, exposed to temperatures down to 20 to 30 degrees Fahrenheit, below zero, with only a sheet for protection. She's still living today. She's 80 years of age. Would we do that? Secondly, if we are asked to perform an immoral act, Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Look at verse 8 because this is important. In fact, this is one of the more important verses in the entire book of Exodus. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And regardless of how safe and sound Christians may be, there will always be a king that doesn't know Joseph. Verse 15, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name was Shepra, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said... When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she can live. But the midwives feared God and did not, as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but save the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said, What have you done? Why have you done this thing? Save the male children alive. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are lively. They are strong. They give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. We know the story, of course. Moses is protected because these midwives disobeyed Pharaoh. Now, that's not like disobeying the president. There's no due process of law in Egypt. I'm sure many lost their lives. Go with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're Babylonian names, by the way. <clears throat> and look at verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They don't respect you, which was a lie. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to bring them so they brought these men before the king and he spoke to them and he said, Is this true that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image which I've set up? Now, if you're ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you to fall down and worship the image which I've made. Good, but if you don't, We're going to throw you immediately in the midst of a fiery furnace. And then we will see who's the God that will deliver you from my hand. No due process of law. And so they answer the king. We have no need to answer you in this regard, in this matter. (laughs) Our minds are already made up. We don't need to think about it. We don't need to ponder about it. We know what we need to do. If that's the case, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us from you. Now, you talk about courage. He will deliver us from you. Just like Jesus telling Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. You don't have any control over me. It was given to you from above. You're not the boss of me. But if not, you ought to circle that if you haven't already. But if not, if he doesn't spare us, we're not going to bow down because it's immoral and we're not going to do it. Turn over a couple of pages to Daniel chapter 6. Those are the buddies of Daniel. And now we see Daniel himself. Verse 6. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. This is not Nebuchadnezzar, he's been long gone. Darius is 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 the king over the Medes and the Persians. All the governors of the kingdom, the administration, and the satraps, counselors and advisors have consulted together. We've had a good committee meeting and we've called them all together to establish a royal statute and make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now O king, establish the decree, sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians and King Darius signed the written decree. Verse 10, Now when Daniel knew, Daniel is an aged man now, probably close to 90. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. and in his upper room, which means so that he could be seen, it wasn't in his basement. It was in the upper room. With his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, that very day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. And so they found Daniel praying. They go back to King Darius. And the king answered and said, The thing is true according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Daniel, one of the captains from Judah, Now, Daniel had been in Babylon, probably at this time, for 70 years. And they still remind the king, oh, he's not one of us. Talk about xenophobic. He's not one of us. He doesn't show due regard for you. But he petitions three times a day. Daniel was humble, but his disobedience was blatant. And we know the story. The Lord preserved him. Third thing. If we are asked to violate our Christian conscience. In the book of Daniel, we're back to chapter 1. Verse 8. We know the story. They brought, in fact, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. That was Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. That was the Hebrew names. <clears throat> Daniel's called Belteshazzar uh, whose prince of all is the meaning of that uh, name. Verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drink. Therefore he requested to the chef that the eunuch that he might not defile himself and God brought Daniel into the uh, Good will of the chief of the eunuchs, and all of this takes place, of course. And verse seventeen. And for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. There's a couple of others that we you can turn with me to Romans fourteen. But here's the thing: Esther also does a very similar thing. She goes before her husband, who is the king. Had not seen the king for six months. And the Bible tells us in the book of Esther, for anyone to approach the king without his asking for them, which Esther did, they would lose their life. But she did it anyway to disobey her husband and her king because her people were more important. Romans chapter 14. And we're not going to read this, but Romans 14 talks about conscience. Verse 1 says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but do not dispute over doubtful things. We'll cover this when we get to Romans 14. But primarily look at verse 22. Do you have faith? have it to yourself before god happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves but if he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not of faith is sin conscience believers are to have sanctified consciences that's where the word comes we're to avoid participation in questionable entertainment in employment and employment in businesses which clearly subject people to either great harm or, or some type of exposure which is outside of the understanding of the behavior in the Scripture. And we also understand that when it's, there's a clear violation of Scripture's interpretation or its application, we are to follow our Christian conscience based on the Word of God. these three areas, and they're clearly defined, there's no ambiguity found in them. You've heard me mention Dietrich Bonhoeffer many, many times. Bonhoeffer, a German, during World War II was essentially a pastor in the the Free Church of Germany, which had to go underground during Hitler's rise to power. And he, he taught pastors in an underground seminary. But eventually the seminary was discovered, and it was closed. And so the church that Bonhoeffer pastored and also was associated with, many of the pastors became reluctant to speak out against Hitler and so their moral opposition proved to be increasingly ineffective. So Bonhoeffer began to change his strategy. To this point, he had been a pacifist. And he tried to oppose the Nazis through religious action and moral persuasion. He found another way. He became a German double agent. He became a spy. He's a pastor. He was in the employ of the German secret service, the Gestapo. And so, They took him into their confidence because he would travel to churches and go to conferences all over Europe, and he was supposed to be collecting information about all these places, especially the Jews that would come in so that they could assemble the Jews and cart them off to concentration camps, and what Bonhoeffer did was he would work with the opposition to hide the Jews, and as you might expect, this was eventually discovered Bonhoeffer, because of his association with the Gestapo, also was able to become part of a plot to overthrow and assassinate Hitler. Oh, God would never expect that out of us. Huh? You remember Samuel? Took the sword from Saul and killed King Agag of the Amalekites? So his tactics changed, and because of those tactics, he spent two years in prison. He wrote many of his great works that we today enjoy. He wrote back and forth to his family and friends. He actually became engaged in prison and had a conversation, many letters between he and his fiance. And so he said God wanted to save the world through the cross, I can't save the world, but perhaps I can save others physically. He was transferred from a minimum security prison to Buchenwald, the concentration camp, and then to the extermination camp at Flossenburg. And on April the 9th, 1945, one month before Germany surrendered, he was hanged. He was asked to violate his Christian conscience. A decade later, a camp doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's hanging described the scene. The prisoners were taken from their cells and the verdicts of court-martial read out to them. And I quote Through the half door in one room of the hutch, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have never ever seen a man die so eternally submissive to the will of God. How sheltered we are in this great nation. The gospel and when to resist authority. If not for the gospel, no one would be saved. And without our contending for the gospel, preaching and teaching would not exist. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the word of God. And yes, the overwhelming majority of times, Father, we are to be submissive to the government. But there are times, Lord, when the blatant disregard for human life or just the destruction of the fabric of society, we are to make a stand. We're to do it peaceably, Father, as we're told. But we're also to be men and women of faith. And we know that regardless of what may happen to us in this life, there is a life to come. As Ada wrote, are you prepared to meet your God? And so our prayer this morning is, if there's anyone that does not know your Savior, that you would move to save them and to empower them by the Spirit of God to become born again so that we too may be model Christian citizens And yet owe our allegiance to you. As the first commandment says, you will have no other gods before me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We will sing a closing hymn this morning. At the close of the hymn, I'm going to ask Brother Craig if he would have our benediction. Mike's going to leave us in a closing course, and then we will be dismissed by Rose. Make your way out of this door, please. And you may fellowship outside. In fact, we encourage you to uh, do so. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. Pray for us this week as we pray for you. Brother Mike.